0: This morning, we're going to begin with a little lesson in Bible history. All right, so book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, God creates the heaven and earth. God who the Israelites call Yahweh, that's his covenant name, and he makes a covenant with a man named Abraham, and he promises Abraham that he's going to establish a people through his descendants, he's going to be their covenant God, and he's going to build a nation, he's going to give them a land, he's going to bless their descendants, and through them, he's going to bless all the nations of the earth. And so this man named Abraham has a son named Isaac, Isaac has a son named Jacob, the Lord changed Jacob's name to Israel, and Israel then have, has 12 sons, and that's where you get the 12 tribes of Israel, if you didn't know that. So the blessing is on Jacob, Israel, and his 12 sons, but then things take what you could say is a slight detour when the 12 sons and their families end up as slaves in the land of Egypt for around 430 years. And it seems like, well, maybe the promise has been broken, forgotten. Maybe God's people are not truly going to bless the earth. But then God raises up a man named Moses. We all know Moses from the movies, from the Sunday school lesson, right? You see a guy in a long cloak with a beard with his arms up, you know that's Moses, right? So God raises up Moses, and Moses goes to stand before the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And and through Moses, God brings signs and wonders and plagues to deliver God's people out of slavery. Moses leads the people out of slavery. The Red Sea parts. They walk across dry land. The waters crash over Pharaoh and his armies. The people are delivered. It's a triumphant day. And initially, the people are are connected to God. They're following Moses. There seems to be great blessing. But pretty quickly, like within a few weeks of being outside of Egypt... The first sign of trouble, really, the people begin to lose their faith. There's a story in Exodus 17, soon after they left Egypt, left slavery, the Israelites find themselves in a desert region, there's not enough water, and so they start quarreling, they start grumbling, they go to Moses, their leader, the representative of of their covenant God, and they complain to Moses and they say, you just brought us out of slavery, you just brought us here into the desert so that we could die of thirst, didn't you? Like they literally say that to Moses. Moses says that all of this questioning and grumbling is, is in fact, testing God. They have no faith in God, no faith in Moses to lead them. But God still has mercy, and so he instructs Moses, go hit this certain rock over there with your staff, and water's going to come out, and miraculously water comes out and and sustains the people. But Moses names the place of that rock. He names it Manasseh, meaning testing, because they tested God. And he also names it Meribah meaning quarreling, because there they quarreled with one another and they tested God. Moses continues to lead the people, you know. They go to Mount Sinai where God meets with them. God gives them the Ten Commandments and literally hundreds of other regulations and instructions to form this ragtag group of former slaves into a nation, into a people. They can construct an army and a government and and organize themselves. Moses is trying to lead the people out of Egypt to Canaan. Canaan is a land that God had promised to the people centuries before to their ancestors. It's a lush and beautiful land and he had given it to them generations before. He had called it the promised land, a place where they were going to go and they would find peace and they would finally be at rest, like rest, something that, that many of us don't get. The people of God didn't get battles and wars and tension and slavery. God said, go to the promised land, there you'll find rest and you can flourish as God's people. But sadly, the people continue to rebel. They continue to grumble against Moses and test him with their grumpiness and their faithlessness. And when they finally reach the edge of the promised land, we read in the book of Numbers, they send in spies to search out the land, to go in and take the land. And what happens? The people come back and they grumble and they're faithless and they say, Moses, we can't do it. No way. It's too much. They don't believe that God is going to bless them. And so you know what happens? God banishes that generation. He says, fine, you don't have enough faith, you won't go into the promised land. And they wander in the wilderness for 40 years while this faithless people, this faithless generation, is literally going to die off and God is going to raise up a new generation of Israelites who have enough faith to go into the promised land and to achieve the rest and the blessing that God has promised them. To give them a home, a place where they can... Be at peace, where they can be a light to all the nations as God always intended. See, here's the thing. The Israelites left Egypt under Moses' leadership, and they initially were full of faith. It was very exciting. They were triumphant and joyful. But very soon... They don't hold on. They don't hold on to that faith. They don't hold on to that confidence. And the people of Israel at that generation were not firm. They were not firm until the end. They rebelled in their hearts. Their hearts were hardened by sin. They gave in to unbelief. And ultimately, they fell away from the living God. And I tell you all of that because that is the backdrop to our passage in Hebrews chapter 3. You have a Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 3, if you're using one of those blue hardback Bibles, it's page 1002, looks like there's still a few on the back table. Open up to page 1002 or wherever it is in your Bible. This whole story the author of Hebrews is going to refer to, and he uses it as a warning, as a warning for those Hebrew Christians that they should not follow the same destructive path of their ancestors, but instead they should hold firm until the end. That's our key theme for this morning because it's a reminder to us as well, our call to hold firm until the end. See, the author of Hebrews, as all of the New Testament authors, looks back at the Old Testament and sees Christ as the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament story. Again and again, the authors of the New Testament read the Old Testament, quote and refer to the Old Testament as foreshadowing Jesus, as culminating in Christ who both fulfills the role of Israel as God's obedient son, true Israel, and also is the Messiah of Israel, the long-awaited one. By the way, side note, if you want to read more about the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, about Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament, I encourage you to go onto our website, top right-hand corner, click on the menu button, and, and there's a search bar. Some of you didn't know this. Some of you didn't know, we have a blog on our website. If you go to that blog and just type in fulfillment, an article will come up, right, called, called, or you can type in Old Testament. There's an article that I wrote called The Old Testament is About Jesus. You know what that article is about? It's about the fact that the Old Testament is about Jesus. Pastor Matt and I did a, a two-part uh, series, a seminar called Covenant and Kingdom that explains the perspective of how the kingdom of God and how the covenant of God is in unity between the Old and the New Testament. So check that out. Bookmark that. You can even pull out your phones right now. If you're not already subscribing to the blog, please subscribe to the blog. It is a great resource. Okay, I only write about half the articles, so even if you don't like the ones I write, there's a whole plethora of other things out there, theological, practical, stuff on parenting, stuff on sex, stuff on theology, stuff on on devotional life. So uh, check out that blog, subscribe, it'll come to your email every Tuesday morning, or you can go to the website and read it. Okay, where was I? Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to see that even Moses, one of the greatest heroes of Israel, couldn't ultimately bring his generation to the rest that God had for them. Moses himself failed to enter the rest of the promised land. But here's the thing, where Moses failed, where Moses failed, Jesus will succeed. Amen? Because like we saw in chapter 1... Jesus is greater than the angels. We saw that in chapter 1 and 2. And this morning we're going to see that Jesus is greater than Moses. Right? So for you mathematical guys out there, here's what the sermon is about this morning. Jesus greater than Moses. See, the call again in the word this morning is to not allow our hearts to become hardened but it's a reminder, it's a stirring for you and I to hold firm, to hold firm until the end. And I want to pull out for us this morning four key reminders, four key instructions on how you and I can hold firm to the end. So let me read for us from Hebrews chapter 3. The Word of God says this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are God's house. If indeed, we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." For you have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Amen. The word of God, challenging word, a word of warning for us this morning, but, but we're going to pull out some, some, some really encouraging, practical reminders for us to hold firm until the end. Let's look back up. We'll start in verse 1. Verse 1 begins with a therefore. We know that chapter 2 reminded us that Jesus came to earth in flesh and blood. He was made like us in every respect so that he could destroy the power of death, so that he could be our merciful high priest and die for the sins of his people. Therefore, chapter 3 says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, because of the work of Christ, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, we're told. Consider Jesus before you. Those who have a heavenly calling. See, in Christ, we have a calling from heaven and a calling to heaven. And despite the harsh reminder and the harsh warning of this section, the author considers that his readers are among those who do, in fact, have a heavenly calling. And I have that hope and that confidence for many of us that we do, in fact, have a heavenly calling calling and so the call is consider jesus that means meditate carefully look to jesus it says there in verse one why because he is the apostle and the high priest of our faith of our christian confession now the word apostle literally just means one who's sent on a mission see jesus is the ultimate apostle the one who was sent by god on a mission to earth to save his people The apostle, the title apostle, became used as one who founded, who planted, who led churches. And Jesus is the ultimate apostle, the ultimate apostle of our faith, the ultimate apostle of the church. Verse 2 says that God appointed him to deliver God's people, and he was faithful. Jesus was faithful in his mission. Just as Moses was faithful in his time over his house, so was Jesus. Now house here refers to what? Look at verse 6. The author is using the reference to house to refer to us. He says, we are God's house in verse 6. See, house refers to God's work, God's building on earth. What is he building? He's building his people. We are the house of God. We are the dwelling place of God on earth. And so verse 3 says, in light of this reality, we see that Jesus is counted worthy of even more glory than Moses was. Moses accomplished a work of deliverance, delivering the people from Egypt, but Jesus is counted worthy of even more glory. Why is that? Why does Jesus have more glory? Raise your hand if you built your house and by that I will include anybody who hired a builder. Nice and high so I can see them. Built your house from scratch. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. If you go to any of these people's houses for dinner or to drop something off, they're going to tell you about the process of building it. Either it was a lot of fun and exciting or it was a huge headache and a big burden, but you're going to hear about it, right? And you're going to hear about how, yeah, the original building plans, the kitchen was here, but we expanded it, and we added these two dormers, and the developer wanted to do this, but, but I got some friends that came over, and we put the deck here, and we added that, and, 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 you know, I put in these hardwood floors here. Let me show you this over here in the corner. I did these little built-ins. You see that? I, I did that, you know, with my kids. Right? They're going to tell you all about it. Now, anybody who, who has a beautiful house that they either built directly with their own hands or that they hired a developer to do and they had a hand in it. And I'll give you credit, you built the house, right? If the house is really big and really beautiful and really impressive, who's going to get the credit? The house? No. You're going to look and say, man, you did a fantastic, this house is beautiful, way to go, this is, this is a great house, right? The builder of the house is always the one to get the credit. The glory, the honor goes to the builder, not to the house. And that's the author's point. That's, that's the author's point in this passage. He says the builder, in verse 3, says the builder of the house always has more honor than the house itself. And he reminds us that every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Hint, hint, Jesus, God in the flesh, is the builder. He's the apostle of God's house, of God's people. Moses, yeah, he was a great leader of God, and he does get glory, but guess what? He ultimately was just part of the house. Jesus is the builder of the house. He has more glory than the house itself because he built the house. And so to further prove his point, he's going to go on in verse 5. To say, consider Moses. Consider Moses, this guy who was the greatest Old Testament prophet, the one who spoke face to face with God. Exodus says, as a man speaks to a friend, he is a hero of the faith. But even he was only a servant in the house. Yeah, he delivered God's people from Egypt, but he couldn't rescue them from their ultimate slavery to sin. Yeah, he gave the people the law. But he couldn't empower the people to keep the law. He formed and he led God's people as a nation, but even he couldn't lead them into the promised land. And so we see that Moses was faithful, but he was faithful as a servant. He was just a witness, verse 5 will say, a foreshadow of what would be said later as God's unfolding plan culminated in Christ. Jesus himself said that Moses wrote about me, Jesus said Moses looked ahead to me, the coming Messiah. But Christ, on the other hand, verse 6 says, Christ, on the other hand, he was faithful in God's house, not as a servant, but what? What does it say? As a son, as a son of God, the builder. And again, remember, that's you and I. We are God's house, the people of God. We are the work of Jesus, the work that he is forming and building here on earth. We are God's sons and daughters formed together as his house, formed together as the dwelling place of God on earth among his people. And so for those who name Christ Lord, those of us who belong to him through faith, who have been filled with the Holy Spirit and and are born again into Christ, we are God's house. And listen to this, Christ is faithful. He's faithful over his house. And and if you're trusting in Christ, you're a part of the house, that means he's faithful over you. In fact, he's more faithful over his house than Moses was over the people at his time. And so verse 6 says that we belong to God's house and we can have peace and certainty that that the Lord Jesus is faithful over us if, what does verse 6 say? If we hold on firmly to our confidence and our hope. It's a hope that is worth boasting about. Listen, this is not a confidence that you have in yourself. It's not a confidence you have in your own faith. Your confidence and your hope ultimately is in the gospel. It's a firm confidence in the good news of Christ that he came and he died for you to set you free. He came and he rose again out of the grave to bring you into new life. And at the close of this morning, we're going to partake of the bread. We're going to partake of the cup. We're going to partake and remind ourselves to put our confidence in that hope, to nourish ourselves with the body and blood of Christ, the Savior who came, who laid down his life for you to call you into the house, into the home with God. Hold firm to Christ. Hold firm to the salvation that he has won for you. Hold firm to the love of God the Father. Hold firm to the Spirit's ongoing work in your heart. Hold firm until the end. And to do that, this opening section calls us to look to Jesus. Keep looking to the builder. Keep looking to Jesus. Consider him, as verse 1 says. One commentator said it like this. It is only by focusing attention on Jesus, our faithful apostle and high priest, that we can sustain such a lifelong and hopeful tenacity through life's journey this enduring commitment is not mere dogged, teeth-gritting survival, but rather a persistence that radiates bold assurance and hope. You say, but life is hard, and the world is falling down around me. How am I going to radiate bold assurance and hope? By focusing your attention on Jesus, by looking to him, considering him. I had lunch with a brother last week who's in ministry, and We talked about our routines and and, and sleep and work and devotional life. And we talked about our phones and not being a slave to our phone. And we talked about, do we charge our phones by our beds? So that when we roll over in the morning, the first thing you do is to grab that and check the sports scores, check the news, check your email. Or is the phone out of the room and do you wake up and you say, good morning, Lord. I need your grace today. And do you look in prayer and in the Word? Do you focus your heart on Christ first thing in the morning? Not your phone, not your to-do list, not your work life. Do we wake up and consider Jesus and look to Him? Are we meditating and, and, and focusing and reminding one another to look to Christ? He is the apostle of our faith. He is the builder of our house. Please, please don't look to your own strength. Please, please don't look to me. Please, please don't look to others or to value or to success or confidence in the world. Look to the builder. First Peter 2 says that, that each of us are like living stones that are built into a spiritual house. This house that God is building and he is faithful over his house. Not just as a servant, but as a son. And he will sustain your faith. He stands guard and he watches over his house The New Testament says that by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Christ will guard your faith. We are being being guarded by God's power until the end. And so the author calls us to stand firm until the end, first and foremost, by keeping your eyes on the builder, by looking to Jesus. And now the author is going to go on in verse 7 to 12 to compare the response of the Israelites to our response and he's going to stir the readers and he's going to stir us to respond differently to respond differently than the people of God did in that era. Look look at verse 7. Verse 7 says therefore since Jesus is greater than Moses, do not harden your hearts to the voice of the Lord. And he's going to quote from Psalm 95. What's the author of Hebrews' favorite book in the Old Testament? psalms right we've seen that again and again in these first three chapters he's continually quoting from psalms to make his point point. and so he's going to look at psalm 95 he says the author of, of psalm 95 is the holy spirit listen to what the holy spirit he says and so in verses 8 through 11 he's quoting psalm 95 and he's saying to the people don't harden your heart to the voice of the lord as the people of israel did who rebelled against moses he says our fathers of faith put god to the test with their rebellion in the wilderness God, as a result, was provoked to anger against that generation because their hearts went astray, it says. They didn't follow God's ways. And so if you read the account in Numbers chapter 14, when they refused to enter the promised land and they said, no, God, we don't trust you. We don't want the land. We don't want rest. God banished them. We read in Numbers 14, God swore in his wrath they will not enter into the rest of the promised land. And so for 40 years... They were led, and they continued to see the miraculous provision of God, but they still did not believe. And so God used that period, as I told you earlier, He used that period of Israel's history to allow the unbelieving generation to die off so that a new generation could be raised up, a generation of faith who would go in and take the promised land. Now listen up. The author of Hebrews is reminding us of the the people of Israel and their experience, and it's a stark reminder that simply being part of a generation of people who had experienced God's miraculous work is not enough. It's not enough to truly belong to God and to enter into his rest. All of those people, they, they were led by Moses. They, they, they saw Mount Sinai shake. They saw God's finger on the, on the tablets of the Ten Commandments. They heard the voice of God through Moses. Moses. They saw the Red Sea part, but guess what? It wasn't enough. They grumbled, they disbelieved, their hearts were hardened, and they did not enter in. Friends, listen. Simply being a part of a generation of people who experience God's miraculous work is not enough for you to truly belong to God. It's not enough for you to enter into his rest. Growing up in the church is not enough. Having godly parents is not enough. Taking on the identity of a Christian Seeing the work of God around you is not enough. The call today is for you to believe, for your heart to be soft, for you to trust, for you to hang on to Jesus and to hold on until the end. And so verse 12 will remind us to watch out. Watch out, brothers and sisters. Look out that there's no evil that grows in your heart. Look out that there's no unbelief growing up in your heart, creeping in, leading you, what? To fall away from the living God. What a sad phrase. Our God is a living God. He's not some dead, old, crusty, dusty God. He's a living God who's at work in our hearts. And yet some fall away, fall away from this God who is alive. If you were with us when we looked at chapter 2, we looked at this phrase of drifting. We talked about Christians who are in danger of drifting away. But here the threat is to fall away, which is a more deliberate turning A more deliberate leaving and forsaking Christ. This term falling away occurs several different times in the New Testament. Jesus warned his disciples that there would be coming persecution. He tells them that he's going to send his Holy Spirit. And he says, I'm warning you and I'm sending the Holy Spirit to keep you from falling away. Paul wrote to the Galatian Christians. He said, if you seek righteousness in your own efforts in the law of God, you will, in effect, have severed yourself from Christ and fallen away from grace. If you earn it on your own, you fall away from grace. Now, if you look at at verses 7 to 12, we see this condition that leads someone to fall away from the living God. And it's described in various ways. Glance through those verses. It's described as rebellion, as putting God to the test, as going astray in your heart, not knowing the ways of God, having an evil, unbelieving heart, being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All of these things lead someone to fall away from the love and the grace and the salvation of God. But, but it all seems to begin in verse 8 with this idea of a hard heart. It all seems to begin with this idea of hardening your heart. And so I'm going to flip that positively and to say, look, if you want to hold firm until the end, keep your heart soft. Keep your heart soft with the Lord, before the Lord. See, a hard heart puts up walls, blocks out the work of the Holy Spirit. And there's a variety of things that could harden your heart. It could be pride. could be a resistance to God's grace and God's help. I don't need it. I can do it on my own. I'm strong enough. Man, we struggle with this. It could be hardened by guilt and by shame. I, I can't possibly accept God's mercy. I couldn't possibly accept God's love. And, and, and guilt and shame puts up a wall. Maybe you're hardened by temptation because the pleasures of the world are too appealing. And so your heart begins to be attracted to the world and hardened to the voice of God. Maybe it's hardened by hardships and the pain of this world. And you're so broken and so beaten and you faced tragedy And the scriptures do not make light of the hardships of this world. But when they they cause you to harden your heart against God, there's trouble. See, a soft heart is open. A soft heart is willing to let God in. Recognizing the need for God's mercy, for God's grace, for God's love. How do you recognize? Brother or sister, how do you recognize when your heart is beginning to harden against God? Well again, what are the things that this passage mentions? It mentions rebellion against God's will. When you begin to rebel, when you begin to test the limits of God's grace, how far can I go? How far can I go in my rebellion and still and still find a God who will who will be with me, who will give me grace? When you rebel and you test his love and his grace. When you are willfully sinning and there's no conviction, we all stumble every day, but when you do so willfully and there's no conviction and there's no sense of Of, yeah, my father is grieved. Your heart is beginning to harden. So there's rebellion, but there's also deception of sin, the passage says. And if you find yourself believing lies, believing things that are not true about God, and you find yourself believing the lie, well, he doesn't love me. God's will can't possibly be what's best. Sure, he's God, but it's not best for me. Or you believe the the deception that, that God has forgotten you. He's with others, but he can't possibly be with me. That deception of sin is an indication that your heart is beginning to harden. How about unbelief? We read about unbelief in the passage. When you begin to be cold, and, and the, the gospel, and the love of God, and the glory of what God has done for you is no longer beautiful. It no longer fills you with joy. And, and, and God's love and God's grace no longer fills you with joy, but you're just, eh, eh. There's other things that draw your heart and your attention. That's a sign that unbelief is creeping in and, and you're no longer trusting in the work of Christ on a daily, active way. No longer holding on to faith in your heart. I remember a man who this happened to. This was going back many years ago. His wife had come to Living Hope. They had gotten engaged. She was a believer and he was not. And I began to do marriage counseling with them. And the scripture calls for believers to only marry other believers. And so as we counseled together, I shared the gospel with this man. And after months and months, he eventually made a profession of faith. And it it seemed genuine. And he was born again. And he got baptized. And he got involved in our men's ministry. And he was active. And he was growing. And the Lord was at work in his heart. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, his father passed away. I think it was a heart attack, out of the blue. A man that he worked in business with, that he was close with, that he admired, that he looked up to. And when he lost his dad, it was like his heart just began to close and began to harden. And I, and I just watched, it only took a few weeks. It was very quick. His heart began to harden. He was not prepared. His heart began to harden and, and, and deception, the deception of sin crept in and he felt like God had left him. And he was overcome with the thought that that life was supposed to be smooth sailing. I gave my life to God. Why would this happen? Why would God allow this to happen? His faith was unprepared. He began to question. Unbelief began to grow in his heart. And he thought that the Lord had left him, and so he fell away. He fell away from the Lord, from the church. He walked away. He denied his faith, and eventually his marriage grew cold. Eventually they separated, and this couple moved away. And after they moved away, I, I had heard, because his wife reached out to me, that their son died tragically in a car accident. I think he was like 21. And I thought to myself, God, no. This man will never come back now. This tragedy is going gonna, is gonna, is gonna, to is gonna cause him to just run even further with every, every ounce that he, that he had. But do you know what happened in God's wonderful, strange, difficult mercy and sovereignty? Something about the tragedy of of losing the son in a car accident began to awaken this man's heart and soften his heart. It was the most amazing thing. And and he said to me, he said, when I look back on the weeks leading up to my son's death in that car accident, he said, I I can see God's hand. And he said, "I, I know that the Lord is at work in this. And he began to hear God's voice calling him. And somehow the pain of that loosened the crust of his heart. And the pain of it softened his heart. And he saw the hand of God in the midst of the tragedy. And praise God, he, he reconfessed Christ as his savior. His faith was restored. His marriage was restored. And this couple now living outside of Baltimore are plugged into their local church and his faith is alive. And so even though the hardening of heart of his heart led him to fall away, God had not left him. God was still there. God restored him back. But do you see how that process, the deceit of sin and the hardening of of one's heart and and unbelief and rebellion can creep in? And so, friends, keep your heart soft. That's the opposite of a hard heart that falls away from God. The opposite is a soft heart that what? Draws near to God. Amen? And so we remember again this theme verse from Hebrews 4.16, let us lend with confidence With confidence, let's draw near to the throne of grace because at the throne of grace, we find mercy and we find grace to help in time of need. Friends, keep your heart soft and draw near to Christ that you may stand firm until the end. So keep looking to the builder. Keep your heart soft. Let's just look for a brief minute in verse 13. I pulled out verse 13 because I was like, this needs to be its own thing. Keep encouraging one another, verse 13 says. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitful of sin. See, if you want to keep evil from creeping into your heart, if you want to keep your hearts believing in Christ, then you need to exhort and encourage one another every day. When is a good time for Christians to urge one another to hold on? When? Today. Is today still called today? Do we we still call today today? I believe we do. So that means this day is a day to encourage one another. It's a day to remind one another of God's love, of God's faithfulness, of God's grace. Because listen, sin is deceitful. And without you knowing, it can slip in and it can harden your heart. And so the call is to watch out. Watch out not only for yourself, but for those around you, for your spouse and for your children and for your friends and your family and for your community of faith here at Living Hope. Watch out. We need one another. A man recently who's going through a very difficult trial with his personal holiness, with his marriage, with his family, he said, you know what? I've been doing pretty good the last few weeks. I'm doing pretty good on my own. I said, please, 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 please don't try to get through this on your own. Because, friends, we need one another. And so that's why we we encourage and we push and we plug our life group ministries, those small groups where you gather throughout the week in someone's home where you can look eye to eye and pray for one another to get plugged into a men's or a women's accountability group, to find a mentor, to find someone to disciple you, to find someone who will encourage you as long as it's called today. And I assure you, Despite my nearly 30 years of ministry, despite my 15 years of pastoring the church, despite the four years that I invested in a Master of Divinity degree, despite the hours and hours that I have labored to study the Word of God, I assure you that I would not last more than a few weeks if I didn't have my wife and the elders and you brothers and sisters encouraging me, calling me to faith, Reminding me because none of us can stand on our own. We need to keep encouraging one another. And Hebrews will come back to this theme in chapter 10. Look at verse 10, verse 23. We'll probably get here like after Christmas. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, listen, if you have a heart today that says, God, I wanna hold on, I wanna hold on firm until the end, Hebrews 3 reminds you to keep looking at the builder, keep your heart soft, keep encouraging one another. That means you pouring out to others and asking others to pour into you. And the beautiful thing is that you don't just get encouraged when others pour into you. But guess what? As you build into others, that blesses your heart and encourages you, doesn't it? And so I don't care if you're like the strongest Christian that ever lived. And you don't think you need encouragement from others. As you give that encouragement to those in need, you'll be blessed and you'll be built up. But then the call of verse 14 to 19 is to keep on believing. Verse 14 gives this beautiful truth that we have come to share in Christ. We have become participants, partakers in Christ Jesus. That means we share in him. We share in his salvation and his glories. The idea is that we're united with Christ. There's this beautiful, complicated theological truth. But it's so simple. When you believe in Jesus, you're joined to him you are a partaker with Christ. Everything that now can be said about Jesus can be said about you. And because he died to sin and death, you have died to sin and death. And because he rose to victory in new life, you have risen to victory in new life. Because he has the favor of the Father, you have the favor of the Father. Because he is seated in glory in heaven and will one day reign in victory, so will you and I. We are partakers with Christ. And so we share in Christ, again in verse 14, if if we hold firm to the original confidence, that word confidence means an assurance, it means a conviction, that conviction that brought us to life in Christ, if we hold that firm until the end, we will share in Christ. And so again in verse 15, the author is going to remind us of that same story from Psalm 95, not to make the same mistake that the followers of Moses did. Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear the Lord calling to you, don't harden your heart as the people of Israel did. And he then asks a series of five questions to prove the point. In verse 16, he says, who was it that heard God and then rebelled? Well, it was the generation that was led out of slavery in Egypt by Moses. The very ones that should have known better, they were the ones that rebelled. In verse 17, he says, who was it that, was, that God was angry with for 40 years because of their ongoing obstinance and stubbornness? Well, it was those who sinned against God. It was the Israelites who should have known better. Verse 18, he says, well, who was it that God swore, you're not going to enter my rest because of your sin against me, because of your disobedience, you'll never enter the promised land. Well, it was the very ones who saw God miraculously deliver them from Egypt. And so 19 will say this, this hard reality that they were unable. They were unable to enter rest. They were unable to find life in the promised land because of their unbelief. Because they did not believe and they turned from Moses and they turned from the living God. See, unbelief always leads to disobedience. It doesn't work the other way. Unbelief in your heart leads you to disobey. Unfaithfulness and disobedience in your life is always an indication of unbelief. And when you give in to, to sin and you rebel and you turn from God and walk away, it's because, it's because the faith that maybe one day was there has withered and has hardened. And so if you want to hold on firm until the end, keep on believing. You'll say, well, I, I did believe. Yeah, like back in the 80s. I remember it well. I went forward, whole altar call, baptism thing. Like, I believed. That's like the pathetic husband who says to his wife, well, why do I keep needing to tell you every day that I love you? I told you back when we got married in the 70s. Ain't that good enough? It's not good enough. It's not good enough for your wife and it's not good enough for the Lord Jesus. Keep on believing. Keep on pressing into faith. See, listen. True believing faith is active faith. True evidence of a true Christian is, who is truly partaking in Christ, is true faith. And true faith is a present reality. It's not a past reality. Praise God if you have been born again. But praise God if that new life and that resurrection in the Holy Spirit is bringing that to you now in the present. present. See, if we're going to guard against an unbelieving heart, that means we need to stir up, listen, stir up a believing heart. That's an active thing. Every day you stir up faith. True faith is active. True faith is growing. True faith bears fruit, and true faith endures into the end. In fact, we can see three marks of a true Christian. A true Christian has faith, and he bears fruit, and he finishes. See, true belief continues in faith. I've shared this with you before, but faith is a muscle. And you must use it. You must intentionally strengthen it or it like any muscle will wither and shrink. And just as true faith is, is active faith, true faith produces a life of good works. True saving faith is a faith that keeps going into the end. And there, there is no conflict or tension between faith and works because faith always bears itself out in a life of obedience and fruit. And this true faith is a is a faith that keeps going into the end. It's, It's enduring. See, a true believer bears fruit. If you don't believe me, you remember that parable that Jesus told about the four soils, and he says the sower goes out to sow, and the sower throws out his seed on four different soils. And you remember that some of the seed fell on the hard path, and it was quickly eaten by the birds. Other seed fell on rocky soil. You remember that? And the seed that fell on rocky soil, it says it immediately grew upward. But because of the rocks, it, it couldn't grow roots down. It. So it grew up, and it, and it had growth, and it looked impressive. But then the sun came, and what happened? The sun scorched and withered the plant. And the trials and the persecution of life withered the plant because it had no roots. There was other seed that fell on thorny soil, and it too grew But those thorns, what Jesus described as the cares and the greed of the world, it literally choked out the life. And so there was growth. Yes, there was growth. But it didn't bear fruit because those thorns choked it out. And then there's the good seed. The good seed falls on soil, and it takes root downward, and it grows upward, and it's healthy, and what happens? There's a grain that that forms on the head. And it produces fruit. Do you know the difference in that parable between the good soil and the bad soil? The seed in the good soil produced fruit. See, both the rocky soil and the thorny soil received the seed, the seed was implanted, and the seed even grew, but it never saw fruit. It wasn't genuine, it wasn't authentic, it didn't truly belong to Christ. Any growth was only temporary, any growth was only above the surface, it was only superficial. See, the true mark of a true believer with true faith is fruit, the fruits of obedience in our life, the fruit of love, all the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And you say, Pastor Tim, I only occasionally see those things and the fruits are, are like microscopic and they grow really, really small. I know. I know. Let's, let's pray together, God, grow up the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Produce the fruits of faith in our lives. That we would be people of growing faith, people who bear fruit, and people who finish, who finish well, that endure through the trials, because the trials will come. They are coming. Many of you are in the midst of them. That you would persevere through hardships, that you would hold on in the midst of the storm, that you would keep your heart soft, that you would draw near to Christ. One commentator said on this passage that those who are hardened... Or become hardened, give outward evidence that they are not and never have been genuine believers who share in Christ. Because genuine believers do not become hardened, instead they persevere. That is, they hold on to their original confidence firm and to the end. And we all have bad days, some of us have bad seasons. Where we're bitter, where we're angry, where we turn, where we walk. Away, But we cannot give up. We cannot fall away ultimately from the living God. We must hold firm to the conviction. The conviction that we have in Christ. We must rest in the confidence that he ultimately is our apostle. He ultimately is our builder. And the builder is guarding us, holding us. See listen, Jesus said that when he calls his sheep to himself, when he gives them eternal life, Jesus said no one can snatch them away from him. Jesus said he is not going to lose any of his sheep. And the New Testament says that the Heavenly Father chose us in love before we were born, predestined us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that his people would be blameless before him. And the Word of God says that those who have been called by God cannot be separated there is nothing that can separate you when you have truly been called by Christ from God's love and so we hold on to the promise of Philippians 1 6 that he who began a good work in you he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion he is holding on to us he will bring it to completion. There is nothing that can separate us. And so knowing that He is holding us should stir, should motivate, should impassion you to hold on to Him, to hold firmly until the end. And to do that from a place of peace. Not from a place of, of worry or frantic. I gotta hold on tight, otherwise, Jesus is gonna walk away. He holds you. Rest secure. He is a firm foundation, he is a steady anchor for your soul. But the call is no less certain, the warning is no less real. Christ is holding on to you. He is a faithful builder of the house, and so hold firm until the end. Keep looking to the builder. Keep your eyes every day focused on Christ and his work. Keep your heart soft. Keep encouraging one another. Keep on believing every day, not dependent upon some decision from years ago, but today a person of faith, today a person of fruit, today a person with the Holy Spirit is empowering you to walk through pain and pain hardship